Um, we're in the middle of our Jesus Calling series. If you've been in and out this summer, we have gone through Genesis all the way now to I did the Gospels last week, okay? And we've done the whole Bible in about, I don't know, what was it, 10 weeks, 11 weeks? And, and we're doing a, what's called a biblical theology. So we're, taking, we're tracing two themes, biblical theology, people... A lot of people are like, well, what's biblical theology? Isn't that any theology? Uh, well, biblical theology is actually a specific um, stream of theology. And the emphasis is it, it traces themes through the Bible or through a book of the Bible or uh, through a testament of the Bible. What we're doing is tracing themes through the entire Bible. And those themes are the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus Christ in the New Testament, the Son of God. Uh, the rescuer who's, who's, was promised in Genesis and is, is coming to save us and rescue us. We talked about that in the Gospels last week. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And then the second theme is we're tracing a theme of hear, trust, obey, discipleship. And that's how we define discipleship here at Trinity Life Church. It's not a program you go through. It's not cognitive knowledge about the Bible. It's, it's not, there aren't certain metrics it's just, are you hearing God's voice, and are you trusting him enough to obey his voice? That is discipleship. That is how you know that you're a disciple of Christ. This is straight from John 10, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, they know my voice, they love it, they obey it, um, hear, trust, obey. And you can see that all through the Bible, it's a series of people hearing God's voice, trusting him, and obeying him, and stepping out in faith. And that is the story that we have walked into. And that's our story. And the Bible is our story. It's not just some story that was written thousands of years ago and has no relevance for us. It's actually the story of you and me and our lives. And that's why it's, that's why it's, it's spanned thousands of centuries of writing and it's spanned even more centuries of being relevant to us because it speaks directly to who we were created to be. Okay, and we're going to talk about that a little later. Um, in that, last week I ended off with talking about self-love, and I just want to say a couple points of clarification on that because I was rushed through it, and so I want to say a couple things on self-love. Talk about how our culture um, emphasizes self-love. Our culture says you need to love yourself, you need to learn how to love yourself, and when you learn how to love yourself, you can learn how to love others. There's a truth in there but the truth isn't in there, okay? So the truth is what our culture would say, well, you have to learn how to receive love in order to give it. That's the truth, okay? That's, that's a true statement. What our culture has done is taken Jesus out of the equation, okay? Um, because you can't truly learn to love yourself unless you love God first. This is why Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So the, he assumes there's a certain amount of self-love that we have. Some of us are better at it than others. Um, the Bible when it assumes self-love, assumes a love that's uh, self-preservation. It assumes a love that is uh, also a sinful type love where the implications of it are it leads to a selfishness and a self-centered and a sinful type of love. Um, but the Bible also assumes a type of self-love that when it's rooted in God, because Jesus says that's the second thing. The first thing is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, 
are your strength. And then he says, you can love your neighbor as yourself, okay? So when that love is rooted in God and who he is, then actually your self-love is God-love. Because here's the thing, this is the story of the scriptures, you're learning to love yourself because you're actually finding your true self in who God is. And you're finally understanding and rediscovering who you were actually created to be. This is the image of God in you from Genesis 1, 26 and 27, okay? So there was just a couple words on self-love um, because we hear it, especially as Christians, and it jives with us because it sounds great. We're like, yeah, you know, self-love, we need to do that. But actually you can't, you're not receiving love from yourself. The truth is when you learn how to receive love from God, then you learn how to give love. If you're just giving love out of yourself, it's always going to be broken. It's always going to be empty. It's always going to be fleeting. It'll always end, okay? But when you're doing it out of who God is, the source of love, the Bible in 1 John says God is love, then it'll be never-ending. It'll never cease. It'll always be patient, kind. This is 1 Corinthians 13, right? You may have had it at your wedding. Um, it is, you didn't. No, actually, you did. I did your wedding. Oh. <laughs> Are you loving that way still? Okay, okay. <laughs> um, and, and this is 1 Corinthians 13. It'll never cease. So a um, couple words on self-love. This will uh, lead us well into the bride of Christ, which is what we're talking about this morning. So we've gone through different themes throughout the scriptures. Uh, Christ creates the promised, the promised Christ. Uh, and gone through all these themes. I won't go through all of them. Last week we did the coming of Christ. This week we're doing the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ is the church. Okay, this is one of the best um, pictures and uh, most rich pictures that the Bible gives of what the church is and what the church is supposed to be, the bride of Christ. But if you notice in the passage that Elaine read, one of the main characteristics is unity, okay? Um, we have a lot of cultural aphorisms or cliches in our culture for unity, okay? Let me see if you guys can, can finish these off. So one is, many hands make light work, okay? That's talking about unity, teamwork, etc. How about, there's no I in team, yeah, yeah. Um, a chain is only as strong as, yeah, it's weakest link. So these are all cultural aphorisms that, that say, yeah, unity is important, teamwork is important. Missy and I were, um, I, told, I told you, some of you guys, if you were here three weeks ago, uh, Missy and I were in Europe for July, and for a couple weeks in July, and we ended our trip in Istanbul just a few days after the attempted military coup. So we were there in Istanbul, we landed in the airport, we were pretty nervous, a little on edge, um, We've been in a more unstable country and environment than what Istanbul was experiencing at the time. Uh, so we weren't that, like, on edge. I was kind of like, should we cancel our trip? And, and, Missy's, and we looked at each other and we were like, ah, we trust God. If we die, we die. <laughs> the, ki the kids are with their grandparents. We'll be with Jesus, you know. We wouldn't be thinking about the kids anymore. We'll be in heaven. So... <laughs> At least that was her attitude. I was like, I love our kids. <laughs> so we, 
we're in, <laughs> you guys know in reality it was switched, right? So, um, so we, we landed in Istanbul, and it was amazing. It was one of the best places I've been to in my life, and we've been all around the world, almost every continent, and one of the most beautiful cities, beautiful people, just loved it there. The city was spotless. You couldn't tell there had just been tanks on the road three days earlier. You couldn't tell there were bodies strewn across the street three days earlier. You couldn't tell a bomb had went off in the airport just two weeks before we got there. You couldn't tell. Like, it was spotless. It was all cleaned up. Um, and do you guys know how the attempted military coup was thwarted? It was thwarted by the people. So tanks got on the street. They closed down the bridges in Istanbul, which connect Europe and Asia. And all the military was on the street. And the president comes in. He flies. He was on vacation, which is why they planned the coup then. He flies back into Atatürk Airport in Istanbul. He gets out. He, can, he can't even do a press conference, really, because the, the, the military had taken over the media. The media. And so they were using the media to... Um, uh, promulgate their message. This is, if you've seen the movie V for Vendetta, this is exactly what happened in, in Turkey. So um, he gets on and he uses, the president actually, they use social media and they get on to, uh, they actually get, I think they get back CNN Turk. Um, and he says, everybody, if you support Turkey, get on on the streets and let's take our country back. And that night, so the, the coup starts that evening, that same night, the streets are swarmed with civilians. And that's how the coup failed. It failed because the people were, came united and they wouldn't let the military take over their country. And here's the thing, a lot of those people hate Erdogan, the, <laughs> the president. They don't like him. They voted him in, they're like, why did we do that? Uh, and it didn't matter because they were united around this ideal of a free Turkey, of a democratic Turkey. And they said, even though we don't like him, he stands for democracy, and you guys don't stand for democracy, and we're going to go out there and we're going to say no to this. Well, a lot of people died, but in the end, a few hours later, the military actually surrenders to the civilians. And they're the ones with the tanks and the guns and everything. And there's images, so here's some images of it. Um, the people, you see, they're like on top of this tank. They have all their Turkish flags out there. I mean, look, this guy's like taking, <laughs> he's like posting on Instagram. I mean, it's, it's like, they just won. I mean, everyone's got their hands raised. Go to the next, the next pick. Um, again, they're on top of a tank here. This is one of the bridges that connects uh, two continents, Europe and Asia. And it's just swarmed with people. You can see that. Um, and then the next one, I can't remember... Yeah, this is probably one of the most iconic pictures here. This guy just standing shirtless in front of this tank saying, no, this isn't the way to do it. This is at the airport there at Ataturk. So that's what happened in Istanbul. They came united, united together, and they didn't care if they, if they were going to die. They said, we're going to stand for something. So this is what I want you to remember as we talk about the Bride of Christ this morning. This statement, if you don't remember any other statement from today, remember this one. If we die together, we will thrive together. You like how it rhymes? It's kind of cool. That's supposed to help you remember it. If we die together, we will thrive together. Okay? 
If we die together, we will thrive together. So Paul talks about this. He says in, in chapter 1, or I mean chapter 4, verse 1, he says here, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, and, and Paul uses this word prisoner, right? Uh, it's not normal terminology. It's not how people normally refer to themselves. But he says, I'm a prisoner, and he, he, he immediately establishes that he's not his own, that he's somebody else's. He's a prisoner for the Lord. That what he does, he does because the Father tells him to do. He sets the example of Jesus for us. Because this is Jesus saying, I, I just do what the Father tells me to do. I don't, I don't do anything besides that. And Paul does this right at the very beginning. And he sets an example for the church in this. You know, Missy and I get asked all the time, why did you guys move to Toronto? We've been here for a few years now. The church is a, a couple years old. And, yeah, we, get, we just get asked, why, why Toronto? Why, how did you end up here? How did you move here? And I always begin the story with saying, we made the mistake of telling God, we'd go anywhere you want us to go, and we'd do anything you want us to do. <laughs> and we did. We said, God, we'll go anywhere. We'll do anything you want us to do. And I was, some of you guys know, Missy, Missy's been in business for the past 12 years. Um, I was in advertising and then went to seminary and then was a youth pastor, a theology professor. And we had what everyone would look at and say was a great life. Missy's family aren't followers of Jesus. And um, they would look at that and say, why would you give that up? Uh, most people would. Why would you give up your home? Why would you give, give up being my family? Why would you give up uh, whatever it is, go on and on and on? And why would you give up good jobs? Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, we made the mistake of saying to God, <laughs> we'll go anywhere and do whatever you want. And it wasn't really a mistake. It was an awesome privilege that, um, that we loved saying to God, and we still say that to God. We will do whatever you want us to do, God. Have you said that to God? Because here's the thing. We think only missionaries or pastors or full-time ministers say things like that to God. But when Jesus talks about following him in the Gospels, he says everybody says that to God. He says that's actually the cost of discipleship. That's actually the cost of the kingdom. That's actually carrying your cross. There's a scene in the, in the scriptures where, where, uh, where the, this rich guy comes to Jesus and he says, hey Jesus, what must I do to enter into heaven and in the kingdom of heaven? And uh, he says, I've done all these things. I've obeyed these commandments. I've lived my life well. I've, I'm a good person. And Jesus goes straight to his heart, and he says, basically, he says, give up the thing that is holding you back from following me. Give up the most important thing in your life right now. Basically, say to me, I'll do whatever you want, Jesus, and go wherever you want me to go. He says to him, go sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. Get all your riches together, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. 
if you know this passage, you know the guy walks away sad because he can't do it because it's the most important thing to him because it's, that's what is the idol of his heart and he can't give that up. He can't, he can't go to Jesus open hand and say, take whatever, whatever it is. He goes away sad and Jesus says to the disciples, he kind of looks at them and they're probably like, they're, the gospels say they're all astonished. This is, this is Mark 10, I think, if you want to look it up. And, and they're astonished, like, who can enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says it's, it's harder. He says it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he's talking about this thing that this guy's holding on to. And the disciples say, well, then who, who can enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says to them, uh, with, uh, with man, things are basically, things are impossible. With God, things are not impossible. And Peter says, Peter turns around, Peter's the brash disciple, and he speaks his mind, and he says what he wants without thinking. He's got no filter. And he says to Jesus, we've done that, Jesus. We've given up everything for you. We've given up homes, we've given up jobs, we've given up moms and dads and brothers and sisters and friends to follow you. And, and he's like, what, what of that? What do we get? And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't push him aside, doesn't ignore him. Jesus actually affirms him. And he says, yeah, actually, Peter, you have done that. You've done so much. And he says, in this life, and it's, it's awesome, because sometimes as Christians we think, oh, we're storing up treasures, treasures in heaven. Well, yeah, that's, that's a passage in the scriptures. But Jesus at this point says, you're going to have a hundredfold return on that sacrifice in this life. Houses, mothers, brothers, sisters, friends, and in the life to come. So Jesus doesn't make a promise that's, uh, he doesn't make an ethereal promise. He doesn't say, oh, you'll have that, yeah, you know, in, in the spiritual realm, somewhere down there. He says, actually, you'll see the return on that here and now. And when Missy and I said that to God, and we said, we'll give everything, we'll do whatever, uh, we've seen that. Uh, we've seen it over and over again, that return. Uh, I mean, we knew none of you guys before we moved to Toronto. We knew nobody here. Uh, and we've met all of you since we've been here. So even Daniel and Linda, the, my co-pastor, we didn't know them until we moved to Toronto, until we said, we'll do whatever Jesus, come here, and, and look at what Jesus has done. He's, he's given us more friends than we want. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, he's, he's given us way more relationships and close ones and great ones and, than, than we ever had before. And uh, it's just a glimpse of that promise. So Paul says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There is a calling and he says, I, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of it. And we're to walk in this way, he says in verse 2. He says, with all humility, so not with all arrogance, but with all humility, and all gentleness, not in a brash way, but with gentleness. He says, with patience. Sometimes when we follow Jesus, we live in a culture with so much immediate gratification, that when we follow Jesus, we expect to be immediately gratified. Jesus, I've done this. Where's, where's my blessing? Where's my reward? What are you going to do for me? But Paul says here, 
when we live up to this calling, we do it with patience, okay? It's, uh, and this word here is often translated as long-suffering. We don't like to translate it like that because we don't like suffering. Um, but he says it's, it's long-suffering. Sometimes we're going to have to suffer, okay? Uh, we won't go into all that. But he says with patience, bearing with one another in love. Not bearing with one another begrudgingly or in, or in hate, but bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, not the divisiveness. He's, he's saying we're, we're good at being divisive. He says in the unity of the Spirit. And then in verse 4, he focuses on unity. And that's why I talked about it early on. He, Paul doesn't hone in on love. He doesn't hone in on gentleness or, or any of these other ones. He focuses in on unity in verse 4. He says, there is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He says, our unity is based on a common origin. It's based on a common bond. It's based on a common experience in baptism, common beliefs, one faith, common God, one God and Father over all, through all, in all. One hope. It's based on one truth. This is what we share as Christians. This is what, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you come into as the church. So if you're not a follower of Jesus today, um, this is what the church is and what it should be. Your experience of the church may have been totally different from this before. And when you look at the church from the outside, it looks very splintered and very segregated, right? I mean, even the church on the inside looks like that at times. But Paul calls us to unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. And he uses like, I love how he uses the bond of peace after he's called himself a prisoner for the Lord. Because it, now it, show, it, it gives you this visual like he has bonds, he's shackled um, with peace as he's a prisoner for the Lord. And he's just doing what the Father says. Um, and it's, it's an unusual imagery, but it's really beautiful once you, once you start to think about it. And... And the church looks so splintered, right? We have denominations and we have uh, preferences, theological preferences, um, uh, worship preferences. Some of you guys, last week we had a full band. This week we have Adam singing. Some of you guys might say, oh, I hate when a guy just sings up there with one guitar by himself. But last week we probably had people say, oh, full band. I wish we just had one guy sing up there by himself. Like, you guys have all your preferences. Some of you guys, I spent, I had multiple conversations this week on theology. And I love theology. I was a theology professor. I love theology. But oftentimes, the conversations we have center around things that aren't core. They're issues that are way down here. They're issues that, like, that shouldn't divide us. But we elevate our issues down here to core issues, and, and they end up dividing us. The issues that unite us are Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died on a cross, resurrected three days later. He's the Messiah. Virgin birth, Trinity. These are examples of core issues that should unite us despite what we think about issues down here. And I won't get into those issues. I'm sure you know what they are. And you can ask me about them. And I love to talk about them. 
but they shouldn't divide us. Because guess what? In a family, unity is one of the most important things. I don't agree with my dad on everything. I don't agree with my sister on, on everything. Um, but we, we're still united in love and the bond of peace. That's how the church should look, which is why Paul also calls it not just the bride of Christ, but the household or the family of God, because those things shouldn't divide us. And, here's, and Christian uni- unity is unique. Christian unity is unique, okay? So Gable and Christina, who aren't here this morning because they're on a cruise in the Caribbean somewhere, I mean, must be nice, right? It's like as hot as the Caribbean is in here, <laughs> but we have no beautiful water. So uh, we have Lake Ontario, guys. Come on. Uh, so they're, they're on a cruise. They're celebrating his parents' 40th wedding anniversary. And I've never met his parents, I don't think. I don't remember ever meeting them. Um, they live here in Toronto. His parents drove down because they're retired, and they're going to drive uh, up the eastern coast uh, to come back, up, up the eastern coast of the U.S. to come back to Toronto. And my parents retired outside of Myrtle Beach. So my parents live outside the Myrtle Beach area. Again, must be nice. They're like five minutes from the beach. Um, but you think it's hot here. It's really hot there. So uh, Gable asked me, he said, hey, my parents are driving back up the coast. Can they stay at your parents as a midway point to, on their drive back? And I was like... I'll ask them, but I don't know what they're going to say. So he's like, yeah, okay. So I asked my dad, call him up and, and ask him. My parents are believers. Um, and I asked my dad, and he's like, sure, of course. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. Are you really sure you want this? He's never met them. My parents have met Gable and Christina. My parents come up here like two times a year or something. And so they know Gable and Christina. And... Um, and I was like, are you sure, Dad? And he's like, yeah, that's, that's not a problem. I was like, ask Mom. Because <laughs> I want to make sure. So he asked Mom, and I expect to hear some sort of grumbling. <laughs> and I hear my mom say, yeah, sure. And my dad says, she's okay with it. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to tell Gable. Like, is that okay? <laughs> he's like, yeah, tell Gable. And so I hook him up over email. And my sister lives, my, my twin sister, she lives right by my parents. And um, she calls me up, and we're talking one day. And she's like, hey, so this was last week or two weeks ago. She's like, hey, so I heard in a couple weeks, Gable and Christina's, or Gable's parents are going to stay with your parents, or with mom and dad, <laughs> our parents. <laughs> Let me start over. So I heard Gable, Gable's parents are going to stay with mom and dad. And I was like, yeah, isn't that cool? And she's like, it's kind of weird. They don't know each other. And, and I was like, yeah, I mean, they know Gable, and I mean, they're okay with it. And I was like, I thought the same thing at first, but dad was okay with it, mom was okay. I was like, even mom was okay with it. Um, and, and, and she was like, well, she's like, are they Christians? And I was like, I was like yeah. She's like, oh, it's okay. And I was like, wait, why? And uh, in her mind, immediately, it, was, it made sense because they had a bond. They had something unique to them because they're Christians. And they're, they didn't have to meet each other because they share something that transcends anything else in this world. And that's the unity Paul is getting at. Like, 
our bonds in the Spirit and one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Spirit, one Father who is over all, through all, in all, transcends any division we would experience in this life because it transcends even our blood relationships. Okay? I have, so I mentioned my twin sister. I thought I'd never have anyone closer to me than my twin sister uh, until I got married because that would be weird. And then 12 years ago, married my wife. I thought I'd never have anyone closer to me than my wife. And it's amazing how, and I, I don't, but it's amazing how, <laughs> yeah, um, it's amazing how there's, there's relationships in my life that transcend even blood relationships and even marriage relationships. Because guess what? If, if, if I'm married to a non-believer, it's, it's going to be difficult for me as a Christian because I'm going to feel instant connection with people who already share my one faith, one baptism, this one experience, one transformation, the same story that I've been through that, and they've been through. Okay? And this is the unity that Paul is talking about. It's a unique unity that transcends any other unity. So if you're not a believer this morning, that's what the church is. That's what it should be. That's what we're trying to uh, put forward here at Trinity Life Church. That we're, that's what we're trying to embody. That's the example I'm trying to set as a pastor, that unity above division, peace. Uh, is, uh, that's the bonds that we're wearing. And, uh, and this is so important because Paul goes on and he says, in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for, for building up the body of Christ. Unity is so important because Paul says God gives these gifts and these gifts have to work in unison. So he gives uh, an apostolic gift, a prophetic gift, an evangelistic gift, a teaching gift, a shepherding or a pastoring gift. And they have to work in unison or else the body doesn't work or else the body isn't build, built up, okay? They have to work together. And this is all in the context of unity, remember. And so here's an example. If the apostolic gifting is the primary gifting that is being, uh, that is activated in the body, you're always going to have a, a uh, you're always going to have people left behind because the church is, is going to be pushed forward, pushed forward, pushed forward. This, this apostolic gifting is a gifting that is, that emphasizes being sent and, and pioneering and so you're going to be pushed forward, pushed forward, but if you do that to the neglect of the pastoring gifting, of the shepherding gifting, then people aren't going to be taken care of. People are going to be left behind. And, you're not, and then you're going to be out of balance. Here's another example. Take the evangelistic gifting. The evangelistic gifting is always outward, 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 bringing people who are far from God near to God. We need that, uh, that gifting. That is going to grow the kingdom. Uh, that's going to grow the church. And, but if that's the only thing being emphasized, and you don't have anything in the teaching gifting being emphasized, then you're actually not teaching people the knowledge of the scriptures. You're not teaching people how to discern truth. You're not teaching people what the truth even is. Uh, they're just baby Christians the whole time, okay? And you need the teaching gift to bring them up into maturity, all right? 
And, and so unity, in its essence, when it, when it works correctly, unity breeds maturity. Okay? Unity breeds maturity. And this is what Paul gets at in verse 13. He says, these gifts are working to build up the body of Christ, in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity, and what kind of unity? Unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is the essence of our maturity. It's in the fullness of who Christ is. Verse 14, that we may no longer be children. And this is what I was talking about, baby, baby Christians. So, because this is what happens to children who in, in their faith he's talking about. Uh, they're tossed to and fro by the waves. Think of a storm on the sea, a hurricane. Um, they're tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind. Remember hurricane imagery here, storm imagery. Every wind of doctrine. And this is an issue in the church. We hear something that sounds good and we run after it. It creates division. We hear another thing that sounds good, we run after that. It creates division. And we forget that uh, unity here is, is what Paul is emphasizing. He says, so we're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says we need to avoid this. In order to avoid this, we have to be unified as a body of believers. The church in its, in, in its essence is, a, is an interpretive community. Okay, so we're great, if you've been a Christian for a while, we're great at individual Christianity. We're great at reading our Bibles by ourselves Some, sometimes. I don't know. We always talk about we need to do that more. Um, we're great at that sometimes. We're great at, at, at praying over here by ourselves. What we're not great at is actually living life in community. You know, our culture talks a lot about unity. Our culture talks about, um, you know, because you may be thinking, how is this different from what we hear out in the world? Uh, because, you know, our, our culture is inclusive, it's tolerant, uh, but those actually are just semblances of this type of unity that Paul's talking about. They're just surface, it's just surface level unity. I've been to a lot of these interfaith things, and once you actually start talking about what you believe, people don't want to, people don't want to talk about it. Um, and, and unity is actually operating, um, it's, not, it's operating in the, not just in the light of your differences, but also in spite of them. Like you, you get to operate with your differences out on the table and you get to say, even though we believe this, uh, we believe this about whatever it is, we can still work together. And interfaith things, they, and this is, this is, these are the ones specific to Toronto that I've been in. We want to suppress our differences and elevate what's common to us and, and say, yeah, we don't need to talk about this stuff. We kind of shove it off under the rug. Um, and we don't end up really working together. Um, we just end up doing things together. So it looks like unity but we're not unified in relationship at all. And this is why at Trinity Life Church, we talk a lot about multi-faith instead of interfaith. So when we talk about 
dialogue and dialoguing with other religions and other people of other faiths, we talk about it in terms of multi-faith. Because as a church, we, uh, we want to engage the Muslim community. We love Muslims. We love uh, talking to them about Jesus. We love hearing about their stories and their faith. And we love this dialogue. But it's never going to happen if we're interfaith. That's why we say multi-faith, where we can exist together when they know up front we don't believe the same things. And we believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as the one who came to rescue us. And even though they might not believe that, we can still have genuine, pure relationship. Okay? So Paul says here, we don't want to be tossed to and fro. And he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to, this is verse 15, we're to grow up in, in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And he ends with love. And when unity is the impetus, um, is the impetus here, he shows us that love is always going to be there. We have to lead, we have to lead in this way with love. And he goes into chapter 4 and chapter 5 next, and, and he shows us that when this happens, when we actually say to Jesus, we'll do whatever you want, we'll go wherever you want us to go, we'll do whatever you want, Jesus, we'll follow you no matter the cost. When we actually say this to Jesus and we, and, uh, and we follow him, he, show, he begins to show us that we have an old self and a new self that we're in darkness and, we, and we've come into the light. And what's so beautiful about that is that in, in chapter 5, Paul says, it's not that we come out of darkness and we just come into the light and we start living the light. He actually says, you are light. So you come out of the darkness and you actually become light, he says, in the Lord. And that's the body of Christ. That's the bride of Christ. It's this light for the world. But here's the thing. If we don't die together, we're never going to thrive together. Like I said, we're great at dying separately. We can do that. But if we're ever going to die together, we need to experience this life that Jesus has come to give us. And if we we're ever going to experience that life in its fullness, we're going to have to die. This is Ephesians 4. But when we die, we're going to have to do it together if we want to thrive as a community, as a community of believers. And this is where Hear, Trust, Obey comes in. Let me throw this up real quick. If we're going to die together, we have to do these things. We have to hear the voice of God. You have to examine your priorities. Is Jesus your life? Ask God that. Are you my life? And let him show you what that looks like. Colossians, Paul says, your life is hidden in Christ. He is your life. If he's not your life, your life is not hidden in Christ. So examine your priorities. Um, our priorities are all mixed up. I can spend... I can do a whole seminar on this. Our priorities are all mixed up. Um, we're, we're focused on our career. You're focused on your family. You're focused on uh, not bad things. Like, these aren't bad things, guys. You're focused on material possessions. You're focused on yourself. Uh, we're focused on all these things that 
we don't have connected to the mission of God, to the kingdom of God. They're siloed over here. And we import Jesus into these sometimes. Uh, but for the most part, our job is over here. Our faith is over here. Our Jesus is over here. So examine your priorities. If you're going to trust God, you need to sacrifice your priorities. Is God's, good, is God's best good enough for you? Can you do this to God, open hand, and say, God, everything I have is yours because I know you have my best interests at heart because my best interests, God, are your best interests, and I know you have your best interests at heart. Can you do that to God, and can you be satisfied that what God gives you that is good is good enough for you? A lot of us who are type A, success, ambition-driven, struggle with that one. We, we, we do this, and maybe this. <laughs> but we're still holding on to something with like our last two fingers. Um, you need to sacrifice your priorities and let God, in the third part, obey, redefine your priorities. Is the church worth it? I actually ask that question a lot, and I've been a part of starting a church in this city. But I say, God, is the church worth it? Is this the way, the best way to impact the world for the kingdom of God? And when I ask that question for you, it's not gonna, it may not look like you being a pastor or a missionary, but for you, to take the church from its universal aspect, you need to, you need to attach it to a local body of believers. And that's this for you. This is Trinity Life Church. And that question for you might be more granular than it is in the sky. You might have to say, is the church worth it for me? Is it worth my time, my effort to plug into a community and to give myself to a community? And that may mean a couple, that may mean you just be, have to be transparent more. That may mean you need to serve somewhere. That may mean you need to get plugged into a, uh, one of our body life groups. That may mean we have Serve Sunday coming up and you need to plug into that. So um, real quick on Serve Sunday, guys, that's next week. This is a huge opportunity for us to bless a community. And guess what? Serve Sunday, Michelle's going to talk about it later. It's not about what we do for them. When we, we're going to abbreviate our service next week and then just go over there. You're going to get a free lunch, a free t-shirt. We're going to go over there and just be in that community. And we're going to bring God's presence there. And that's it. Like, who cares if we do any projects? Who cares if we do anything except pray while we're there? We're going to bring God's presence to a community that in one square block has 25,000 plus people who mostly don't know Jesus. And we're just going to be there. I met with a guy this week. He's 20 years old. He was following Jesus, forsook the faith, came, well, here's the thing. I've seen this guy around Toronto. Missy and I have random meetings with this guy. We've, it's really random. Toronto's a big city, and we ran into him in the Eaton Center a year ago. The Eaton Center, who goes to the Eaton Center in here? None of us. <laughs> we don't go there. I don't even know why we were there. We haven't been there since. It was a year and a half ago. Um, uh, we were there walked into a store and he was there and connected, had lunch. He's like, I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm living my life. He's studying philosophy at UT. And he's like, this stuff just, I don't, I don't know. I'm just trying to find truth. And I left him with this. I said, 
if you're actually genuinely seeking truth, you will find it. And I said, I'm confident if you're doing this, you'll find Jesus. And that's the last thing I said to him. And then that was a year ago. Last week, Missy and I are at Young and Eglinton, and they open up a sweet Jesus there. <laughs> Don't judge me for going there. Um, we went there, and it was after we'd gone to the Aga Khan Museum as a family. They're free, it's free on Wednesday nights, so it's, a, it's the Muslim museum in the city. Um, it's my Ishmaili Muslim, so uh, go there. It was phenomenal. We went there, went to Young and Egg. A couple factors, this really is so providential because a couple factors delayed our time and all of this. And so we're walking back in the neighborhood, going to our car, and this guy walk, goes by on a skateboard right by us. And I barely see him, and we cross, and he goes this way. And I'm like, I know that guy. I recognize him. And I go to turn around, and I hear the word pastor come out. And I look, and it's this guy, like completely random. And I'm like, what are you doing here? And, and we start talking. Well, we end up meeting. Um, well, actually, he's, I said, what are you doing? He's like, I got to tell you something. I'm so glad I ran into you. I came back to Christ yesterday. <laughs> I was like, what? And so we talked this week. We're having lunch, and just so phenomenal. It's like, man, this is so awesome, God. Um, 20 years old, one of the most intelligent guys I know. One of the most, he's so, he's super intelligent, uh, which is also one of his problems, probably. <laughs> so we, we're talking, and he says, Mike, I don't know what to bring from my old life into this life. He's like, I've always felt like I was meant to do something great. I've always felt like I was supposed to influence the world and change it. I said, you know why you feel like that? It's because that's what you're created for. That's what you're always meant to do. That's a story that you live in, that I live in, that the church lives in, that you weren't meant for mediocrity, that you were meant to change the world. If you're sitting in here this morning, one of the biggest plagues of the church today is that we're okay with status quo and mediocrity. And you weren't meant for that. You're meant to be an image bearer of the living God to the world. You're meant to create culture, not just accept it blindly. You're meant to uh, soar, not to be caged up by culture. You're meant to just spread the love of Christ and spread unity and peace and all good things, not, not let the culture tell you those are bad things. You were meant to influence the world, which is why here at Trinity Life Church, we say, discover your identity in Christ, discover your, your destiny in Christ. And when you do that, you will influence our city and you will influence the world. And when he heard that, he was just released and said, I love Jesus so much. Because he has said to Jesus, I'll give anything to you, Jesus. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll go wherever you want. Because I know you've called me to influence the world. And that's your story. That's the story you've entered into. That's the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ is beautiful. It is glorious. It is light to this world. But we need to die together if we're going to thrive together.